millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Censored, the podcast frolicking through filth and immorality. I'm Aoife Vrutnach, a historian dissecting obscenity one case study at a time. If you want to support the show, you can subscribe, rate and review in your podcast app. And I have a Patreon where you can get early access to episodes and research notes. You can find the links in the show notes. Thanks to Paddy O'Shea for signing up. Much appreciated. Last episode was part one of my deep dive with Dr. Lloyd Maeve Houston into the Playboy Riots of 1907. We talked at length about the play itself, including incest, crime, lawlessness, and some gross breastfeeding stuff. If you haven't listened to that episode first, go back and catch up. It helps explain why people were so outraged. There was lots of offensive potential in Singh's play, even if it was mostly suggestive rather than explicit. But after the first night's mild disorder was followed by extremely critical newspaper reviews, the tone of the protests changed. Here's Lloyd and myself trashing out what happened on the wildest night in Abbey Theatre history. So shall we just talk about, move on to the riots? Yes. So the play opens on Saturday and it's a little bit of rulibula, a little bit of, you know, undercurrents and there's a bit of shouting, but it's not too bad. But then when it opens again on Monday, pretty much what they call uproarious scenes uh, hmm. develop. And I mean, Monday night, like reading the, the newspaper accounts is just amazing. It sounds like the most <laughs> incredible couple of hours of anyone's life um it's so dramatic there's i mean we have to do a whole extended piece on mr fitted overcoat and his entrances and exits <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah well i think he, he's a he's a tuesday feature but yeah but, but that monday and tuesday night are both like wild wild uh, it sounds insane there are songs and slogans and people bring sticks <laughs> to yeah, the auditorium <laughs> Just to touch on the kind of Saturday briefly for, I think, for kind of contrast, it's worth just mapping what the Saturday night was like versus what the kind of Monday and then the Tuesday were like. So the Saturday is kind of filled capacity. You've got about 500 people there um, and it's attended by like, you know, the cream of Dublin society. So you've got the Dowager Countess of Drogheda and Lord Mount Eagle and Sir Hugh Lane, you know, the, the, the kind of famous gallery owner and Joseph Holloway who's designed the Abbey. And you've got all the kind of literati in. 
uh, you've also had the. It, this is the first production to take place with the Abbey introducing um, discounted half price six penny seats in the pit. Um, oh. I, it's t- I, I've undoubtedly screwed it up. I tried to figure out the conversion rate for what sixpence would have been like bought you, and and it seems to be equivalent to about five euro in today's kind of oh, very spending part. So like re- you know really quite cheap seats. They're, they're previously a shilling, which was about twice that price. So you've got this section of the. So what you've got basically is this um, audience that's divided along sort of lines of social, cultural, and economic capital, um, and fairly kind of evenly along sectarian lines. Um, but also like an audience that's seeing a play with fresh eyes and responding to it in real time. So their objections, you know, come in and intensify like pr- mainly in the sort of third act, and it's all fairly sort of sincere. Um, so it seems that's then reported by the Freeman. Um, so the play isn't performed on the Sunday. So by the Monday, people have had a chance to read coverage of the play. Um, mm. And that's when you get um, the, this it, uh, much more kind of unusual mix of people. So you've got, it, it's quite sparsely attended. The Monday, you've got about fewer than 80 tickets sold, of which more than half are the cheap seats um, uh. that are filled by all the lads who've come to um, kind of register their frustrations. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, again, the, the like who these guys actually are is is, is um, sort of, I, I suppose, a matter of debate. Like Yeats characterizes them as followers of like Arthur Griffith and as, as sort of Sinn Feiners. It's hard to know how accurate that is, but certainly they're kind of, you know, a, 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 like Gaelic revivalist nationalists broadly seems to be the, the, the kind of character of them. So they're in, in the in in um, those kind of cheap seats on the ground floor. Um, they sit very patiently through the rider, uh, Riders to the Sea. So the play, is it's a sort of two-part performance and before the... the um, so you've got this very like, quiet, kind of tragic play, um, and then they launch into the Playboy. And to, and to their credit, they sit very patiently through Riders yes, to the Sea. Yes, they don't have a problem with that <laughs> one. Uh, that, that's that's grand. You know, people people dying in the ocean and it being sad is, is unobjectionable. Um, and then the minute the Playboy starts, they're booing and hissing and stomping feet. Like they struggle on. Eventually, um, they get through most of the first act, and then W. G. Fay, um, who, who, as I say, was directing it and playing Christie, he stops the performance and kind of, you know, declares himself a Mayo man, and it basically tells them, like, says, you know, cop on or we'll call the police. Um, and so, as a patent saver, the Abbey technically have the right to do that. They can call in police protection to kind of ensure uh, order. Um, you know. As you can imagine, for especially confronted with a nationalist audience who are already reacting to them as a bunch of sort of like unaccountable Anglo-Irish elitists calling in the police. It's like it's the worst thing you can do. Um, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, uh, about a, somewhere between a half dozen, a dozen officers rock up and then kind of just sit there like lemons for a while and then get dismissed again. The aristocrat and antiquarian Lord Walter Fitzgerald makes a speech from the stalls asserting the actor's right to be heard, which again doesn't help. No, so I mean, really. Dying. Posh people telling you what to do is not going to go down well. Yeah, like, bless him. Um, and and uh, the protesters don't pipe down basically until um, the play's over. Last act is virtually inaudible and the stage lights are extinguished. And it's not until they're kind of left in darkness um, that things kind of dispel it's even worse on the tuesday yeah i mean the, the tuesday is uh what am i do selectively read from um chris morash's rendering of it in um a history of irish theater just because he he does a very good job of like succinctly 
kind of distilling what happens mm. but there's a lot to get through um so from around like seven o'clock on the tuesday a crowd begins to gather around the pit door of the abbey and a similar group of 40 guys taking the pit seats but what's happened in the interim is after the monday lady gregory has reached out to i think a nephew of hers at a tcd to be like can you bring some of your mates um so <laughs> <laughs> so what we've got now is not just one group of rowdy young men but another group of other rowdy young men who've been brought in to like quell the first group of rowdy young men um, <laughs> this is also, going to go really well isn't it <laughs> yeah. but it's a bunch of like trinity athletes and like you know a, n- n- not to lean too hard on the stereotypes, stereotypes but you know yeah, go like, on. <laughs> either of our tcd people are athletes but again if if the issue is that the abbey is being seen as this you know posh anglo-irish institution bringing in a bunch of um, posh anglo-irish young fellas maybe not the answer to that um so but you've also got a situation where you know you've now got your audience stratified on class lines and sectarian lines across two floors or like well with one group in the pit and then one group in the um in this the the stands so the slightly more expensive seats just in front of them. So that goes about as well as you'd expect. But along with or among these guys, there's a bunch of lads who are also brought in from Galway who sing. Oh yeah, they didn't even pay for tickets. They just they're brought in. They just present themselves as like, yeah, no, no, we're 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 totally here for what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and Sing apparently waves them in. Um, there's one fella, yeah, in our our friend in the overcoat. Oh man, yeah, he's who, the best. <laughs> who um, in in a later parody is, is I think dubbed Napoleon. Um, he decides to get things moving by offering to fight anyone in the pit before standing up on a chair to make a speech, which came to the resounding conclusion: "I am a little bit drunk and don't know what I am saying." I mean, that is perfect. <laughs> With widely reported words. Um, most of the audience, including the pit, um, who he'd offered to fight, love this. They're they're really down for for this guy. <laughs> Um, so um, on the back of this success, he proceeds to kind of wobble his way to the side of the stage and play an unsteady waltz on the piano before being escorted back to his seat. Um, he keeps up through um, the the performance. The rowdier the crowd gets, which includes yeah everything from um, banging sticks on seats, um, yeah, free and easy offers to fight anyone and everyone present from pretty much everyone present, um, bugles being blown, foot stamp and hiss and booing, lots of Irish language singing, lots of cries of, a uh, recurring, um, cries, you know, like, that's not the West, that's not, yeah, what, you know. that's, that's not real, that's not true, um, and some like good like uh, I mean it, it gets funny like, I think some some of the better waggish stuff comes on like later days but by the, by the end of the week the 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 protests kind of become a very amusing parody of themselves and everyone's having quite good fun with it but I think it is a bit more sincere and but the Galway man is is muscled out by Singh and um, another attendant so they wrestle him out. And he disappears for about an hour, then re-enters. He comes back in. Um, he's he's like the, the classic comedy act. I love him so much. Yeah, he he is he is great. Um, and they they sing what what is they sing loads of songs like like the Men of the West and. And they, they actually, they sing God Save Ireland, which I must declare an interest. I am distantly related to the man who wrote it. Really? <laughs> I am, yeah. Well, I mean, unhelpfully, the Trinity students sing in response, God Save the King, which is just like, 
Guys, what are you doing? <laughs> it is not the choice, really, is it? But, uh, yeah, what, what are some of the songs? We get, like, Hurrah, the Men of the West, and... Um... A Nation Once Again. Yes, yeah, yeah. Again, to be fair to the, um, the the Freeman, they have a lot of fun. They basically give you like um, you know minute by minute account. So we're <laughs> yeah. you know um, a ten a ten minutes to ten. Like is this thing, the, the disruptions make this thing run for hours. It's like a three act comedy that's basically about maybe like seventy eighty minutes in performance. Right, it's brisk. You know, um, this thing goes over by like three hours by the time everything's done. Um, a good value for money if you've only paid a few shillings. Great laugh. Absolutely. Um, but uh, yeah, it no, it's it's. Oh, one of the ones they sing on Tuesday actually is the Peeler and the Goat. Yes, which I have come across in other contexts, which is actually something that people sing at the police when they want to start a fight. <laughs> because it's uh, quite rude. It's about a policeman trying to arrest a goat. And it, you know, it mentions <laughs> horns and, you know, lots of things that are clearly sexual. <laughs> Especially by the point that it's become a media spectacle and kind of started to, like, perpetuate itself. Like, it's it's very easy to frame the riots. And obviously, you know, Gates and, and various other people at the Abbey strategically frame the riots as, like, sings, virile, truth-telling art um, being shouted down by a bunch of, like, philistine prudes who you know have are like morbidly averse to sex in all its forms um and to be honest a lot of it just has the flavor of like you know a pub like halfway through a good like rugby match or something like you know it's a bunch (laughs) of lads who are increasingly just enjoying opportunities to heckle something and usually heckling it very amusingly (laughs) like you know, there's points like that. They have a debate um, the following week. Like, you know, Yates um, organizes a sort of onstage um, forum to discuss the play and and um, to discuss the freedom of the theater. And at one point, Yates's father, um, you know, gets up to, to speak in, in defense of his son and, and the theater. And someone's like, why did you kill your father? <laughs> like, heckles you. It's like, it's just, you know, they are... They are um, good crowd, or like you know that that whole cry of like that's not the Western way um, becomes its own sort of trope. So there's a point in the play I can't remember which character. Someone turns down a drink, and someone's like, "That's not the Western way." <laughs> <laughs> um. So would you say then, because there does seem to be an interesting tension between the sort of the stance within the newspapers and these editorials where people are like, this is a disgrace, it's terrible, we need to fix this, it's extraordinary. And then there's just the sheer fun of the actual riots themselves. It's like, what do you think that there's a difference in aim between the newspaper editorials and then the lads actually rioting on the night? Do you think that they, they can be put on the same spectrum I think kind of one one hand sort of washes the other. I mean, obviously, like there's, you know, the the, the Freeman um, Journal, which I think is is the the paper that most assiduously goes after the Abbey. Um, it's as much as this is often framed as a kind of debate between um, you know Sinn Fein and the Abbey. Um, Griffith is actually quite late to press on it. I mean, he comes out swinging and he has a long-standing grudge against Singh, like as, as far back as um, in the Shadow of the Glen. He's been kind of um, attacking Singh's plays as, you know, these kind of um, as slanders on Irish womanhood. Like, he, he talks about how Nora Burke in that play is, you know, fundamentally un-Irish because she 
um, is prepared to kind of walk away from a, a, a sort of loveless marriage or is, well, is forced to walk away from a loveless marriage by the um, sort of, you know, violence of her husband, basically. But, um, uh, you know, and, and he adopts some like weird positions about that. Like he claims that the play isn't based on an Irish kind of folk tale at all. It's actually based on the widow of Ephesus because he wants to like distant, you know, there's all this crack. Um, but but fundamentally, the papers recognize this is great copy, right? Like, yeah. you know, I, I think we're all very familiar now, like depressingly familiar with the ways in which the media, you know, is financially incentivized to propagate controversy and how a kind of like, you know, there, there are shades of the way cancel culture um, outrage works these days where, you know, the, the paper will generate a kind of outrage response to something then report on the response to the response Once. in yeah. a way that kind of iterates itself so you know while while i while i think it would be wrong to claim that, that the freeman is you know uh, its editorial position is insincere it's definitely rhetorically calculated like it's it's really hyperbolic in a way that seems you know to kind of be inviting a strong response like it's it's almost calling on people um, and by the, you know, the kind of second or third night, it really is asking people to come and put the play down. Um, I mean, j- just to quote from that, like, initial, the, the, the review that seems to set most of this in motion, you know, you've got, um, a strong protest must, however, be entered against this unmitigated, protracted libel upon Irish peasant men, and worse still, upon Irish peasant girlhood. The blood boils with indignation as one recalls the incidents, expressions, and ideas of this squalid, offensive production incongruously styled a comedy in three acts. <laughs> The blood boils. I mean. I mean, they actually give a really accurate summary of the play. Like it is, it, it's very, it's interesting um, how engaged with the material they are. Um, <laughs> but there's also this sense of like the, you know, um, it being kind of unacceptable that an Irish theatre company is doing it. Hmm. So if a company of English artists attempted such an outrage, the public indignation would rightly be bitter. Indeed, no denunciation could be sufficiently strong. That such a piece should have been conceived and written is strange enough that it should be accepted, rehearsed and enacted in a house supposed to be dedicated to high dramatic art and truth would be past all belief, but it has actually been done. The worst specimen of stage Irishman of the past is a refined, acceptable fellow compared with that imagined by Mr. Singh. And as for his women, it is not possible, even if it were desirable, to class them. Redeeming features may be found in the dregs of humanity. Mr. Singh's dramatis personae stand apart in complete and forbidding isolation. It is not necessary to inquire whether, even if such things were true, they should be brought upon the stage. It is quite plain there is need for a censor at the Abbey Theatre. Yes. I mean, they openly seem to demand, you know, some form of censorship. And the minute, and, and they will offer the most kind of detailed coverage of the, um, the, the riotous response and, you know, and then they give a kind of platform to... So, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, they know what they're doing to some extent. And... Then the the protesters, yeah, I think there's it's a complicated one. Like the, the motives of everyone who protests, um, I think are, are are multiform. Like on the one hand, clearly the riots arise out of a, a sort of wider conflict over the ownership, quote unquote, of cultural nationalism in this period, right? You know, who who has the right to speak for and as Ireland? So the protesters who you know identify themselves as authentically Irish or of the West or whatever, you know, however true that claim is who the press identify as Sinn Féiners or Irish Ireland followers, um, Yates identifies them in increasingly bitter terms as kind of petty bourgeois Catholics. 
they're registering their objection at being misrepresented and patronized by what they perceive to be an elitist coterie of pseudo-aristocratic Anglo-Irish Protestants who, instead of pres- pres- like preserving and reviving authentic Irish language culture, were presenting Irish peasants as a gaggle of murderers, inbreds, and nymphomaniacs. Um, <laughs> And doing so under the kind of, you know, spurious, as they would see it, spurious sort of smokescreen of, like, European drama. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, like, to be fair, if you listen to the way Yeats intervenes in these debates, you can't fully blame them. Um, so uh, to, to go back to that kind of Monday night debate, like, Yeats, he he, he does kind of make some, some choice assertions. Um, he says that, uh, you know, he talks about other examples where Irish audiences have forced um, playwrights to apologize for their work. So he cites an example um, of a similar occurrence in Liverpool where like a, a stage was rushed and the priest who'd written the play had to come out and apologize to the audience. And Yeats haughtily asserts that the management of the Abbey had not such pliant bones and did not learn in the house that bred them so suppliant a knee. Uh, <laughs> so basically, you know, he's just saying like, yeah, well, you tigs are used to kneeling and, you know, shriving for things. But uh, me, me and my uh, prodigy friends here, we're, you know, we're, we're not quite we're not willing to uh, to bend our knee in that manner. And I think th- those sorts of remarks are where we do cross over into, I think, a much more like sincere vituperation. And, I do, you know, so in, in that sense, um, the audience are not unjustified in being arced um and they're also to to be fair to them they are basically holding the abbey to account for their stated intention to function as ireland's national theater yeah i mean it is it has a a a different function to commercial theaters trying to promote an image of ireland it is trying to represent ireland and and it's almost asking for democratic feedback then isn't it (laughs) yes right and 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 kind of Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I, 
I, you can almost see this if you go back to even some of the kind of finding documents of like the Irish literary theater, right? That, you know, the, there's a much quoted um, uh, sort of manifesto that they, they issue very early on where they say, you know, we hope to find in Ireland an uncorrupted and imaginative audience trained to listen by its passion for oratory and believe that our desire to bring upon the stage the deeper thoughts and emotions of Ireland will ensure for us a tolerant welcome and that freedom to experiment, that freedom to experiment, which is not found in theatres of England and without which no new movement in art or literature can succeed. We will show all that Ireland is not the home of buffoonery or easy sentiment as it has been represented, but the home of an ancient idealism. Um, and we're, you know, talk about being confident of the support of all Irish people who are weary of misrepresentation in carrying out a work that is outside all the political questions that divide us. Like, th there's so many papered over cracks in that <laughs> statement around, you know, like breezing past political divisions, um, suggesting that, you know, they will find in the Irish, in a in a kind of an Irish audience that's imagined to be illiterate, which is patronizing enough, and, you know, um, that they will be receptive in a way that a kind of English, you know, it, it's a very complex balancing act they're trying to pull off. And not all that surprisingly, they are sort of called on this, you know, and especially that sense of like, no, no, we're pushing back against kind of stage Irishry, we're pushing back against misrepresentation. That claim seems to, you know, kind of haunt them in the response to this play. And then also, I suppose, kind of tied in with that um, is... Uh, a debate over the nature and, and like function of theater and art more broadly right you know like is is theater or art meant to be kind of for its own sake or you know mm, uh, art? or is it for some wider national project um what does it mean to kind of envisage the irish nation on stage what does it mean to kind of make an audience um there's also just really fundamental kind of sh it's something that i hadn't even really thought about until i was revisiting this but like w this is very much a period in which um contemporary norms of theater viewing are only just beginning to emerge like the idea that you go to the theater to sit in darkness and listen attentively to what's being said on stage and you don't contribute or turn to the fellow next to you in chat or you know be seen um is something that's um not novel at this point but is like um something that you know wasn't the norm in say other dublin theaters Okay. So the yeah. Abbey is trying to kind of institute this as a, a kind of mode of um, attention that is somewhat atypical. Um, and and so, the, you know, I, I think we, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it was more normal to, you know, respond to what's happening on stage audibly. <laughs> Heckling was a thing, basically. Um, and, um, you know, so... And again, there's there's shades of the Abbey being seen as like trying to kind of enforce a slightly suspiciously alien set of norms around how you do theatre. There's, I mean, we can also just talk more about why there isn't quote unquote kind of censorship in in Irish theatre um, because that that is a, a sort of not insignificant um, feature in all this. Like what 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 your rights are when you purchase a theatre ticket is a is an interesting question in in this period. Because in, in Britain, isn't it, there is a censorship in the sense that the Lord Chancellor is supposed to, like, license the play. Uh, yeah, so, Lord Chamberlain. So, yeah, I mean, to, to cut a, um, a a long story, sort of, like, very, uh, very short, <laughs> the British stage is regulated from, like, the 16th century by sort of royal prerogative. But from 1737, you have a succession of stage licensing acts, which, as, as you say, established this figure, the Lord Chamberlain. Um, who's uh, the most senior sort of officer and like 
um, administrative figure within the royal household, and he's a member of the Privy Council. And under this system, this figure and his readers would scrutinise plays submitted to their office for licence by theatre managers and in accordance with an informal and often like arbitrary set of principles. Where have we seen that before? Um, (laughs) But like questions like, was the play obscene? Was it blasphemous? Was it seditious? Was it likely to prejudice British foreign relations? Did it depict living persons, etc.? Like these questions, um, would they would recommend cuts or they would just outright prohibit performances. And that goes on till about 1968 when... Um, when the Theatre Act is passed, that sort of effectively um, declause the Lord um, Chamberlain and, and sidelines them. Those acts, for a variety of reasons that we don't have time to go into, aren't extended to Ireland. So, and then after independence, weirdly, there is no equivalent to the Censorship of Films Act or the Censorship of Publications Act for the stage. So, technically, and I stress technically, there are no formal limits to what you can say or do or depict on the Irish stage. Now, obviously, as the response to the Playboy suggests, like what that kind of opens up is a whole load of informal ways for this to be sort of regulated and responded to. Social pressures, censure of all kinds, riots, letters to the editor. Cuts to funding, um, you know, I mean, money. Boycotting. Yeah. But what it means is that, you know, you've got, Irish playwrights being sort of empowered to push the boundaries of taste and decency in ways that maybe were unavailable to their English counterparts. But you've also got Irish audiences rightly feeling that without the, you know, the protection, quote unquote, of a censor, that it's also their duty to like push back, you know, make their displeasure felt and heard. So in that sense, from a present day standpoint, this all seems very extreme, but in its own moment, it's not a completely unprecedented way for a theatre audience to have behaved and it's kind of a testament to the the abbey's own marketing <laughs> that they you know that they've made that that it becomes this sort of you know watershed moment in Irish cultural history. Um, I, I mean, as as a as a pair of theatre critics noted um, a while back, I, I think scholars cling to the Playboy riots in part because it offers them the reassuring illusion that at one point theatre actually mattered <laughs> like had an impact on, on political life and- imagine people cared enough to go multiple times in the week to shout at the actors it's uh yeah but um but yeah so that sense that you know with your ticket you bought the right to like intervene is maybe not as like wild um but yeah so as i say i think there's there's this kind of mix of impulses some of which are just it's great crack like this just becomes it just runs and it's fun. And there's the logic the logic of kind of crowd disorder is once it gets going, everybody starts to join in and the entertainment factor builds and it's just it is fun. You know, Mr Overcoat Man must have been wildly amused. Coming from, from Galway. <laughs> I can't came from Galway. Stands up, says he's drunk, walks in, walks out, bundled <laughs> in, bundled out. I mean it must have been such a laugh. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but but equally, I, you know, I, as I say, that obviously coexists with like a sincerely felt sense among Sinn Féin, Irish Ireland, you know, Gaelic revival, like construe them how you will, um, that the things that, you know, the, there's the sense that the things that Sings play depicts um, and exploits for comedy, like violence, lawlessness, inebriation, sexual incontinence, lying, self-deception and incapacity for self-regulation. Right. These are all, you know, well-worn, hibernophobic tropes. Um, that have been exploded in particularly like British colonial contexts to justify the subordination of Ireland. And 
um, rather than creating the conditions necessary for like mass liberationary consciousness as a national theater might be expected to do um, or presenting a case for the for for Irish self-governance the abbey in this reading is basically just like handing the Brits ammunition to be like look at, look at the hacky usings um, no admittedly the, the the crowd response to the play arguably also does that confirms all of those images yeah like how, how dare you claim that we're a bunch of like drunken disorderly violent people says a drunken disorderly violent crowd of people um and that and you know and like yates makes great hay of this right you know he um in both in his sort of contributions to some of the debates um but also in in subsequent like he writes an essay after singh dies in 1909 it's published in 1911 um 12 where he you know um, he sort of harks back to the riots and presents them as this sort of moment in which what he describes as like a howling mass, you know, um, tries to shout down Singh's like virile sort of um, masculinizing, self-possessed, autonomous art. He also like gets a few digs in about the sexual continence of the audience. So he, he talks about uh, the opening anecdote of that essay is um, a moment where Singh runs up to him and says that he's just been sitting beside a doctor who couldn't who could barely contain himself from turning around and pointing out everyone in the audience he's treated for venereal disease uh, <laughs> so you know there's there's this sense of like use you know these people have come to the theater to shout down what they claim is a kind of sexually pathological slight against the irish but actually in their own midst are people even more sexually pathological than sing's cast of characters and it's actually the Abbey who are doing the kind of, you know, necessary work of confronting Ireland with, um, you know, the truth of itself. I, I suppose it, it ultimately it's a it's a, uh, a situation in which there's kind of right and wrong on both sides. You can like it's justified on both sides. You feel like everyone has a point in this. And also, like, it just becomes a shit hurling match in which everyone is a bit covered in, you know, like no one comes out of this clean uh, and everyone kind of gets tangled in each other's rhetorics and kind of, you know, in my own sort of academic work, it's something I'm quite interested in is the way that like this is often framed very neatly as a debate between a kind of pious group of prudes and a sexually literate and kind of progressive abbey. And actually everyone is sort of exploiting similar discourse around like degeneration and kind of a medical conception of what good sex is and calling each other out as like somehow kind of sexually corrupt or like it it all very quickly descends into uh, you know pots calling kettles um like sexually disordered (laughs) 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 uh, in in ways that like set the the terms of debate for um the relationship between modernism and nationalism in ireland for you know decades um, so in that sense, you know, uh, 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 this does anticipate, I think, a lot of what the Censorship Act crystallizes and, you know, responds to. <laughs> yes, there is that age of hysteria and paranoia and apocalyptic thinking, you know, that if we say something uh, transgressive, then terrible things will happen. <laughs> Not that everyone will just move on or forget about it, but it will have permanent moral consequences. And I think that's what connects censure with censorship, I think. Yeah, totally. 
So was the Playboy controversial after this or was this kind of the end of it? Did it continue to keep going or was it tainted forever as a filthy play? Well, I think it, it manages to sort of do both, which is that um, as, as we sort of touched on, the Abbey does a very good job of incorporating into their marketing spiel the controversy of the play. Um, but it also becomes one of, by far and away, their most revived production. Really? Uh, yeah, so like there are 11 Abbey productions in the first decade from its initial performance. So basically, bar a sort of one year hiatus in 1908, um, it's arrived pretty much every year until 1916, at which point the theatre itself is nearly burnt down um, in, in the rising. Um, and then it comes back in 1918. Um, and then there's another sort of short hiatus where it's mainly Sean O'Casey who's, who's causing all of the, the sort of ruckus. Um, <laughs> And then it returns to basically being revived every year or every other year. It's also one of their most toured plays. Um, so there are 76 tour stops in the first sort of decade, including three American tours, which actually the first American tour is even more riotous than the, uh, it puts the Dublin one to shame. The, 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 the kind of um, the Irish American <laughs> response to this is... They were not impressed. <laughs> exceptionally furious. What, what, it, what it kind of means is that the, uh, the Abbey quickly like builds it into its own mythos, right? Um, and then seeks to like engender comparable controversy. So the play in the stars, um, which is a play we can probably do a, a similar episode about in future, um, you know, seems to uh, replicate this moment. And then you've obviously got Yates coming on stage to scold the yeah. audience <laughs> citationally by saying like, "You've disgraced yourselves again." Um, <laughs> And they also, like, the Abbey produces a lot of plays that riff on the Playboy. Um, so, like, in 1912, you've got Lady Gregory's The Deliverer, or, like, in 1918, you've got Lennox Robinson's The Lost Leader. But, like, a load of, like, for a while there, there are a lot of Abbey plays where characters at some point or another pick up something that resembles a loy and kill someone. Or plays where some, like, things get shouted down at the end, and there's a kind of, you know, mob um, kind of reckoning. It's usually a, a hurl instead of a loy, so you can see the, they, they kind of cotton on to like, maybe this will make this more palatable. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like you, Colin. It's good. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, a- acts of iconoclastic loy wielding and spasms of misguided mob rage are a, a big thing in the, the sort of 1910s in the Abbey. So all of this, you know, hot air and rouse and ructions not only didn't stop it at the time, it becomes, in fact, an incentive. It it inflates the myth of the Playboy, and that's part of the reason it continues to be so famous. So it has the opposite effect to what... As, as censure and censorship often does, right, it kind of, it singles, you know, something out as... Like famously good and dirty. Yeah, where, I mean, you know, look, what 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 is this this podcast episode? But a you know a kind of meta 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 footnote on. <laughs> we're just perpetuating the phenomenon we're describing. Yeah, we are happy to do so. <laughs> but um, but yeah, no. So it's it's it seems to uh, serve. Uh, yeah, for, for the Abbey, it confirms their status as, um, you know, iconoclasts and avant-gardists. And for for kind of, nas- you know, for, for the, the those who opposed the Playboy, it, it kind of confirms their image of the Abbey as this, like, fundamentally kind of suspect alien Anglo-Irish, you know, um, pretender to the crown of, of, of nationalism. Um, and I think both groups are, are fairly happy to, to let that remain the case. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lloyd. That was great. No, my pleasure. Always a joy. 
I don't know about anyone else, but I would have loved to be in the theatre during these riots. The newspaper reports offer such a vivid picture of sincere objections and vigorous debates combined with some hilarious drunken antics. No wonder the riots became legend. For everyone involved, it must have been unforgettable. Interestingly, the uproar didn't successfully censure the Abbey or the play itself, since Singh's work was performed over and over again, year after year. In this case, condemnation made the work of art more popular. Next episode is an entirely different story. I'll be examining a book burning and a boycott in Delvin, County Westmeath. In 1918, the novel of local boy Brinsley McNamara was publicly burned by his neighbours, who recognised themselves in it. Some of you will have heard of this particular novel. It's The Valley of Squinting Windows, a phrase that's entered into common parlance to mean nosy neighbours. I cannot wait to find out what sort of novel could provoke such a violent backlash. Hopefully it'll be full of licentiousness. Though, 1918? I can't imagine it's that rude. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.